Every show, my son continues to remind me that the temperature in Florida is about 70 degrees warmer than over here. So, um, interesting enough, you know, you ever saw my coffee mug? I have. I have one. So, so last week, talk about my good listeners. So, last week, I talked about how one of the children in my class broke my mug. Not this mug, but one of my regular coffee mugs. I live on my coffee mugs. So, for those who didn't notice my mug yet... Um, <laughs> So he comes, we study once a week. He comes with two mugs. He comes with a coffee one with a thermos that has a little um, finger thing to open and close. He gives me a new mug like this, not with my picture, not with my logo. But um, so I have some good listeners out there. I should pick like things like my car breaking down or something. We, have, we can think bigger. Detroit, a Detroiter won the Man of the Year. The Man of the Year. Yeah, you heard about this, Ashley? You heard about this? You heard us talking before. You heard us talking. The Man of the Year was for the best beard. The wall, I think it's W-A-H-L. Yes, it is. It's the shape. I was a little disappointed. Especially, I trimmed this week, but I had a nice beard. You have a very stylish and a very apropos beard. Well, it was much bigger and bushier till last week, and uh, I don't remember any any honorable mention of me or my beard. We're gonna have to work on that one. Well, as the as your prominence grows and your uh, your numbers increase here, I think that somebody will. Uh, put you up to take that title next year. Excellent. Now, only one thing. He had a great mustache. He had one of those handlebar. Well, that just is, uh, I'm sure he must be part of the product company that Max. No, this is you, though. I mean, you don't want to detract from that kind face. No, even if it means winning the man of the year. Right. Maybe a runner-up is not a bad situation. Today, what we're going to talk about um, are numerous topics. We're going to talk about a special number that happens to happen around the Passover time. Throughout Passover, it's a very prominent number we'll talk about. We're going to talk about the difference between magic and miracles. We're going to talk about the plagues. We're going to focus on the first and second plague, blood and frogs. Certainly, because is a a prom I know you're not Jewish, but what's a prominent number on Passover? Any idea? I'm gonna go with first night of Passover, we we sit, we have a, a meal with family, with friends and we talk about the Exodus. But the, the number four actually gets repeated.
Luther King. I had a great song. We're going to, I thought I could get it for the intro. It didn't work for the intro. We're going to play it later on in the show. And we're going to connect Martin Luther King to the Torah portion. I, I think love you'll it. be fascinated. Um, so I- There is getting out of Egypt. There's destroying the slave owners, really, is what's going on. We have to, we have, to have a... In other words, this went on Civil War time, pre-Civil War time, not so much afterwards, but even if you escaped to the north, they hired these guys, I don't know what they called them, you might know what they called them, to go hunt after the escaped slaves. They were the early-day bounty hunters. Yeah, they are bounty hunters. And what's fascinating, it's a slave mentality, by the way, which we had. That's why we needed these four stages. When those bounty hunters caught up with an escaped slave, my understanding is they gave up. There wasn't much of a fight. And that's why the slave owners could have all those slaves working for them, because there's a certain mentality that you work for the owner. You don't know what to do. Well, you were raised under that environment. You were, that's all you knew. I mean, we all want, I mean... Oppression darkens the mind and closes the windows to the world, which is, that come from your soul, and it just, anytime you are oppressed, you are depressed, and you can't see past what your day is. Right, I think that's true, and that's going to be why we needed a four-step process. So, first, we had to stop the hard labor. So, first, we have to stop working. Then, we have to leave the country. So, we went on strike. We didn't go on strike, but we'll talk about it. Okay. We didn't go on strike. Again, that, that will be a little bit different from what happened in our own country. But we, because the plagues came about, so the Egyptians were not in a position anymore to make us work. One of the reasons was the sand became bugs. That's the third plague, called the bugs or the lice. So when the dirt turned into, into bugs, you couldn't make bricks. So you couldn't work. So it wasn't so much you went on strike as much as there was no work to be done. So it's good to have God on your side. Always good to have God on your side. And I get a smile from Ashley. For that alone, it's worth it. First, we stopped the hard work. After we finished the hard work, we had to leave the country. But like I told you, when, when the, the slaves in America went north, that wasn't enough. Now, it didn't happen in the south what happened here, but you're going to get to the third stage, which is when we go into the Red Sea, the Egyptian army follows us into the Red Sea. We come out, and they're all drowned and destroyed. And then it actually says we were nervous. In other words, we got out one end of the tunnel. Who's to say the Egyptians didn't come out on the other end of the tunnel? So it says the, the sea brought up all the bodies, and you could see that was my owner, that was his owner, that was my owner. So you saw your owner was dead. So you knew no one could chase you anymore. So that's, that was part of the necessity. And after those three stages, after no more work, and we leave the country, and we realize that there's no bounty hunters that are going to be chasing us, once we get to that point, now we're ready for stage four. That's we become God's nation. We get the Torah. Let's talk Torah. That's what we're all about, talking about Torah. And um, once we get to that point, and we get the Torah, now we're God's nation. Those are the four steps. I told you it's a four-step process. Therefore, there's four cups. Interesting enough, yes. and this you probably didn't know, and if you did, I would be proud of you. But interesting enough, there's, um, there's a fifth cup. 
we actually have what's called the cup of Elijah. Ever heard cup of Elijah? There's a fifth cup. The fifth cup is actually poured, um, poured towards the end of the meal, but nobody drinks it. We open the door, we say Elijah comes in, you do see him, you don't see him, you don't see him. He's an angel. He's like an angel. That's the fifth cup, because the fifth cup is actually going to the land of Israel. So the question is, the first time we went to Israel, is it when the Messiah comes and we finally go to Israel? All that becomes quite debatable. So that's called the fifth cup, cup of Elijah. So we got our number four, we got our, we got our, we got our four stages. That's the beginning of the Torah portion. So and again, I just want to remind anyone with all our different topics today, um, if you'd like to call in, feel free, 844-999-9249. 844-9, I got it right this time, 999-9249. Now again, something interesting. You know, again, this is a Jewish thing. I don't know if your parents did, did, did this to you. They ever say, my son, the doctor? Oh, of course. Of course, they say, except they didn't say about you, my son, the doctor. No, but they, I have uncles and aunts who had, I have cousins that were doctors. So it was a very standard thing for certainly immigrants to come mm-hmm. into the country, and they would say, my son, the daughter, I guess son, I'm so sorry, my daughter, the doctor, when they immigrants came, they didn't say my daughter. That's an old generation. Nowadays, my daughter, the doctor, you they know, just, actually, some doctors are only ladies. Absolutely. In, in some fields, you can't find men anymore. Like, obstetricians and stuff, it's, it's all over. So, um, my son, the doctor, my son, the lawyer, somebody said for the failures, my son, the accountant. <laughs> So, uh, radio hosts, I'm not sure where that came in exactly, but um, that actually comes up in this week's Torah portion. Oh, beautiful. Very interesting. Um, in last week's Torah portion, we talk about Moses being born. No mention of his parents at all. None. I mean, it says uh, a man from Levi took a lady from Levi, had a kid. And, and he put him in a basket but, and floated down the river. Very good. Put him in a basket and floated down the river. Well, didn't really float down the river. That was how was last week. I taught Ashley all that stuff. But in this week's Torah portion, we actually get their names. Oh. So the question becomes, if you're going to tell me their names anyways, why wait till this week's Torah portion? When Moses is born, just tell me his father is this, his Amram. His mother's name is Yocheved. What, what, are, you, what are you waiting for? So it's a very cute answer to deal with my son, the doctor. Because, I, I mean, Buzz, you, can, you can relate to this. Is it healthy when parents say or brag about their children, my son, the doctor, when the kid's like 12? <laughs> Not so much, no. Not so much. Why? Why? Because the kid has to find his own way in the world, and his destiny is basically yet to be determined. See, I like that. I knew I would like your answer. However, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says, there is a time where it's okay for parents to brag about their children. So in this week's Torah portion, when do we find out Moses' parents, their names? Moses is already 80 years old. When your child is 80 years old, you want to brag about R.D.? When he's 80, go right ahead. It would be in a manuscript somewhere because I would be beyond... Yeah, I always tell my kids, like, what's the big deal? We're just going to live, you know, longer. At least I tell them that. But in any case, yes. In other words, we don't want parents 
bragging about children. It's not healthy for the child. It's not good for the child. It's not good for the parents either. But it's certainly not healthy for that child that somebody's running around bragging about who that child is. It's not a good idea. So therefore, um, the Torah also waits. We don't want Moses' parents bragging, my son, the leader, the this and that. Your kids, your eight, now they weren't alive, by the way, at this point. But your child's 80 years old, you can say whatever you want. And I think that um, parents that brag constantly about their children become sort of offensive to other people. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm going to use a, uh, an incident that's going on today in the, um, in the media. The man named LeVar Ball, who has uh, taken his sons out of school <laughs> and sent them to Lithuania to play basketball before they're fully developed as human beings. Can you imagine going Obnoxious. away to a foreign country, not home, not... Uh, and Moses also had to leave home, by the way. He had to grow up. But your, your whole life, it, your father is dictating your life of who you're going to be, what you're going to be, how much money you're going to make for me, about me. Father is living his life vicariously through you. And that is not healthy. But if he would be 80, if his kids would be 80 years old, and Different he story. still wants them to play basketball, go right go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. Right, at, right away. Okay. Moving right along in this fast-moving Torah portion. So we have, I, I said over in class today, it's really very fascinating. We are, we are familiar, the Egypt was full of what's called magic. The Hebrew word for that is called kishuf. It was a type of real magic. I guess everybody nowadays, they think magic, they think Harry Potter, but there was some type of real magic. By the way, if you ever listen carefully to the Harry Potter stuff, she's, she's very good at research. You know, she actually takes examples out of the Talmud or words or Hebrew words or Aramaic words to use in her books. She did a really nice job. She's a brilliant author. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy the books, which yeah. I tell you. They came out, I read it that day. <laughs> Supposedly so that I would make sure it was okay for my kids to read the book, but to make sure I read it first. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, in any case, so the Egyptians had the ability to do magic. So Moses comes to Pharaoh, getting ready to warn Pharaoh about all these plagues. So you can't just warn Pharaoh, who are you, what are you, why should I talk to you? Like... Do something. Show me who you are. So Moses tells Aaron, take a stick. He takes a stick. He throws it to the ground. You know what it turns into? Snake. Turns into a snake. What do the magicians do? What do they do? Yeah, what do they do after they see this this magic feat, supposedly? They bow. (laughs) No, they don't bow. Does she have any idea what they do? Um, I mean, like I told you last week, I've seen... A prince of Egypt. Ah, so I, what I'm, happens? I'm pretty sure they, they retaliate with a bigger, badder trick, but I don't remember. Oh, you, the, what the pharaoh does. I, I thought you meant the No, actually, the I magician. meant exactly the magicians. But okay, you, but your version is the pharaoh. I'm going to fix that soon. But what did the pharaoh do? He got nervous. Really? You, know, you have a different version than I have. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, w- what I'm saying is he... Uh, he was alarmed, so he had to do something to one-up him. You guessing? You're telling me. I'm kind of a little on the. I'm walking down the middle of the road you're here. Down the road. Okay, here we go. Actually, Pharaoh was at least he gave the impression of being not impressed. 
In other words, he said, turning a stick into a snake, that's magic 101. He calls in children, some say his wife, the magicians, they all throw sticks onto the floor, and they all turn into snakes. There's snakes crawling. I'm sure you would have appreciated it, Ashley. Um, Alex, I know that the ladies in my house don't all appreciate snakes. My wife does. I love snakes. You do like snakes. I do. Yeah. I do not. We have a pet snake. My son loves them. He feeds them mice. He loves snakes. Ooh. My mother came to visit. We had to make sure the snake was out of the house. The snake's out of the house. She comes to visit. Snake's in the house. She's not coming. Mind you, his birthday present one year was like one of these... I don't know if it's a stuffed snake or one of these snakes you put on top of a car or something. Like, the last thing in the world she would want her. Oh, of course. But she was good about it. In any case, so they're, they're really telling Aaron and Moses, if this is all you got, we're not impressed. So I saw recently a very, a very fascinating question. And this really goes through all the plagues, by the way. It's really very interesting. So I'm a magician, I turn my stick into a snake. So if you want to show me you're a better magician, certainly in the Harry Potter mode, what would you do? I would one-up you. I would... How would you one-up me? I, my, sta- my, my snake turned my <clears throat> stick turn into a snake. What are you going to do? Ah, the imagination. What are you going to do? I don't know, conjure something bigger? Why wouldn't you take, say Tony's laughing, why wouldn't you take my snake and turn it back into a stick? You threaten me with your snake. Your snake is nothing to me. Poof, it's back into a snake. You can't do nothing. Oh, that would be a mild way for me to, if I were the one up him, that I would be. I think so. I don't have to make some yeah. big monster running around the room here. I'm just going to go ahead and show you that you're, you have no power over what I'm, what I'm doing. That's what I would do. Interesting enough, throughout the plagues, the best the magicians can do is copy. They can never stop anything. They can't get anything to go away. They just, like, add to the problems. But they can't get it to go away. So the thought on that is that, again, God, Moses, Aaron, it's not magic. It's what's called a miracle. God is changing nature. It's miraculous, not to be confused with how magic was done and how magic was done and how it works. There's different ideas that are brought up. It's not really, for now, it's not going to help us. But what is for now is that when you did, the, the, the way you did magic, you never did anything good. Magic was just to go ahead and, like, do bad, more bad, more rotten stuff. Disrupt everything. You, you couldn't fix anything. You couldn't help anything. You couldn't, you couldn't do anything good. That's what it sounds like. The magic did not do good. Again, Harry Potter, they tried it. Yeah, the Slytherins, their magic is bad, and other ones, and I can't remember all the names anymore, but I'm sure you remember them. The, they, there were abilities to do good things. It didn't have to always be bad. There were the bad ones, there were the good ones. That's fine. But in reality, the magic, the kishuf that we talk about in Egypt, that was, that was really only for bad. It didn't accomplish anything good. It didn't help anybody. It just showed that one person was more powerful than somebody else. Did it create fear? Oh, for sure. I mean, other were the leaders. And, they were. And and any time you create fear in someone else, you paralyze them. Okay. Fear, fear is a paralyzing. I mean, when I was a military man, boy. Yeah. Um, they teach you that fear will absolutely paralyze you you will not think clearly when you're when you're fearful you don't do anything everything sort of shuts down and you 
tremble and you're fearful. So it reminds me of a great story. In 1948, so the little country of Israel was being attacked on all sides, except for the ocean side or the Mediterranean side. So you have all these nations pouring in to attack. I think their air, their air force was like two, you know, uh, crap, crap, crap duster planes. They had no bombs. So what they did was, and it's, it's exactly what you just said, they would take bags of glass bottles. So you go up 500 feet, 1,000 feet, and you drop these bags of glass bottles. So when they land, they make a humongous explosion. Explosion is frightening because the, one of the main purposes of a bomb is just to scare everybody. Everybody's hiding in their bunkers. You're not going to make direct hits. But you scare people with all the noise. So they use that psychology when they had no bombs. They had no Air Force, no planes, but they can make noise. So that's like a very fascinating. And it's, uh, fear is a very debilitating thing, hence the reason at the beginning of, uh, I believe it was World War II, when Roosevelt said, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. There you have it. I accept so that leads me into uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about. I guess talking about fear, it's a good lead-in. Um, we talked about it before, that this weekend in Hawaii, they were quite frightened. Oh, you very saw much what, so. <laughs> what happened in Hawaii? Mass confusion and panic. Why, what happened? The, um, during a shift change, the, um, somebody inadvertently pushed the real button instead of the drill button for a nuclear attack from North Korea on the island to the island of Hawaii. And um, when the difference between it said, this is not a drill, this is not a drill, in a very calm and non-panicky voice saying, seek shelter, you have 20 minutes. Well, the population went nuts. I mean, people were trying to find their, first of all, it's a nuclear warhead coming your way. There's really. <laughs> I was thinking about this. It's. Uh, I mean, and it uh, and it took 38 minutes to correct the situation. So there were traffic jams. There were people running helter skelter all over the place. People leaving the beach because it shows up much like a, a amber alert does on your cell phone these days. And they put the whole. I mean, went across all five islands that are inhabited. And uh, it was mass panic, and it was it was an inadvertent button that was pushed instead of the drill button, which they do uh, during every shift at least three times to make sure that the system is working. He pushed the wrong, he or she, someone right. pushed the wrong button. Amazing. So it's about fear. Uh, Ashley, you were obviously not looking at the top of the news when this was going on. I... You did not know this. Anyway, it's amazing. So it leads me really into the next part of the Torah portion. Moses is going to warn the Egyptians about every, almost every single plague. It's actually, the, there's three sets of plagues, a total of ten plagues. There's three sets, three, three, and four. Um, the first two plagues of each set, Moses warns Pharaoh and goes around warning the populace. They clearly were not so frightened because they weren't running around in a panic. They weren't hiding their kids in the sewers or going to the fire stations and saying, help me, like what's going on in Hawaii. And again, I was wondering when I was reading this story, I mean, it's a nuclear bomb. There's really nowhere to hide. 
people were hiding in bathtubs. I, I think they thought it was, and laying, you know, in the 40s. Laying flat on the ground like they were being attacked by the Luftwaffe or something. Yeah, and, the whole, but, but it sounds like when you go through the Torah portion, it does really sound like, very much like, that um, the people were not in a panic when they heard about plagues. They knew the plagues were coming. You know, after the first couple, you know, you get the picture. Every time Moses says something's going to happen, something happens. But we don't find the people, except perhaps by the last plague, we don't find them storming the palace, demanding from the Pharaoh to get the Jewish people out. It was not happening. So a little bit of a difference between the warning with that Hawaii story and the warning with, um, with, with these different plagues, which brings us into some of the plagues. But before I start the plagues, um, if Tony is there for me, we're going to take about a minute break. We're going to play it's a, a cappella. I'm not going to play through the whole song, but there's a, a great a cappella song by James Taylor, very timely, Shed a Little Light. This is sung together by two a cappella groups. Um, it's a great song, and it's just going to lead us in to one uh, of the plagues I wanted to discuss and how it connects, how the Torah portion is connecting to Martin Luther King. So, whenever Tony is ready, I'm ready. He's ready. So now we have to push a button. Push the right one. <laughs> Let us turn our thoughts today to Martin Luther King And recognize that there are ties between us All men and women living on the earth Ties of hope and love of sister and brotherhood And we are bound together in our desire to see the world become a place in which our children can grow free and strong. We are bound together by the task that stands before us and the road that lies ahead. We are bound, we are bound. There's a feeling like the clenching of a fist There's a hunger in the center of the chest There's a passage through the darkness and the mist And though the body sleeps, the heart will never rest Shed a little light, oh shed a little light It's on YouTube. You can either type in Shed a Little Light 
Um, these are two groups that are playing. Um, one is called Maccabees. One is called Naturally Seven. So free advertisement for them. But those groups, acapella groups, they're singing the song. The song is very appropriate. It's a very nice song leading into Martin Luther King Day. And I just wanted to use that as an intro getting into the plagues. So I told you we're going to talk about two plagues, but I'm going to skip around because I want to get to the Martin Luther King part first, and then we have to see how much time we have left with our letter and word of the day. And again, if you'd like to contact the show, it's 844-999-9249, or you can email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. And as Peter likes to remind me, um, an easy way to get to the show on your phone is to go to the App Store, your Google App Store, your Apple App Store. You type in NRM for New Radio Media. NRM Streams ends with a Z. And it'll come up with the app. It's a very nice app. You scroll down. I'm under Community, under Let's Talk Torah. There's all kinds of shows. You can get to, you can contact the show from there. All kinds of great stuff if you get that app. And we'll check it out. You should check it out. It's really well done. Anyways... The second plague is a fascinating plague. It's the plague of frogs, where the country is overrun by frogs. I don't know your feeling about frogs, slimy, green things. I like frog legs. You like frog legs. <laughs> I must tell you I've never tasted frog legs, but I'm sure a little salt, pepper, a little oil. Roadhouse style. That's, uh, Roadhouse style, yes. yes. <laughs> My kids were asking me about that with raccoons yesterday, but fine. That would be roadkill. That would be roadkill. I got it. In any case... Um, so what happens is that the frogs come up out of the water. The Talmud says, because of the wording of the verse, one verse says frog, and other verses say frogs, plural. It's debatable in Hebrew if there's really a plural on the word frog, or it's just frog means multiple fl- frogs, like sheep. You know, multiple sheep, single sheep. In any case, the Talmud says one humongous, ugly-looking frog comes out of the water. So the Egyptians see this frog, and they say, that's it, that's the plague, and they run with their pitchforks and their knives and their baseball bats and their guns and bazookas. I make up stuff for my class until they figure out what's... So they get a mental picture. Well, the problem is I give them a, met- a mental picture with things that didn't exist, you know, three right. and a half thousand years ago, but they have no idea, so it's my personal humor. Anyways, they start attacking this frog, and then the frog explodes. Thousands, who knows how many frogs... Come out. There's frogs all over the place. But again, how many frogs? A couple thousand. So the Egyptians get angry, and they proceed to try to kill the individual frogs. What happens is every frog they tr- they attempt to squash doubles. You never heard this before. Not about the frogs. No, See? I'm just thinking Hydra. No, no, no. <laughs> everyone, everyone, they hit double. So again, think about it. If you realize. After the first couple of times you smack a frog, it doubles. If you stop right now, so you got a couple thousand frogs here, 10,000, 100,000. Egypt's a big country. I mean, what are they going to do to you already? They're not going to overwhelm you. You just move away for a few days. Just uh, go uh, vacation somewhere. But they were angry. We were talking about this earlier today, right? What happens when a person gets angry? Reason leaves the room. Reason leaves the room. He stops thinking. I said this to a boy in my class. Now, this is a boy who happens to have a major anger issue. And he actually, in my class, is doing beautiful. He fights his anger. But I mean fights it. In other words, 
you could see the temperature and the volcano, and you see he's angry, and you see him fighting the urges to explode. Otherwise, he can't be in class. He can't, he can't do stuff with us. It's amazing how this child has grown. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's hard that he has this issue, but so when I said this in class, I said, I talk about that the brain turns off. So he says, it was amazing. I'm telling them that a person gets angry and the brain turns off. He says to me, the brain doesn't turn off. He says, your mind is so filled with anger, there's no room for anything else, which is really It's really very interesting on his part. From a third grader. Yeah. Because people are trying to help him deal with his anger. He understands it's filling my mind and I, I can't function right now. So they're angry. So they're angry. They are bringing the plague onto themselves. They're not stopping trying to destroy these frogs. So you've taken a couple thousand, and it doesn't take long to create hundreds of millions. So hundreds of millions will overrun your country. Through, so through anger and fear, they are exacerbating the situation and really making it worse for themselves. It's beautiful. Well said, all with big words that I don't know how to put in sentences yet. But yes, well said. I, I, I had I, to I, use one of the three that I know. No, no. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. So now here's the question. So what does this have to do with Martin Luther King? And Ashley is thinking. And Buzz is winking. And Tony's not even paying attention. This one is way beyond him. Okay. So I was doing my research this week. Mm-hmm. So Martin Luther King said that to be a leader, I was a good leader, bad leader, to be a leader, you must have self-control. If you do not have self-control, you cannot be a leader. Which, again, was one of the things he, he really was trying to teach people. We're not fighting. Every time we have a problem, we're not going to solve our issues by fighting. We're going to be cool, calm, and collected. We're going to deal with people. But we're going to have control. We are not going to lose control. He fought um, violence with reason which was a very rare thing during the emotional days of the civil rights movement. It was incredible. He was very Gandhi-ish, the way he approached everything. Right, and there you have it. If, it's, if, it's, if you're using your, your, your rationale, you're going to get angry. You get angry, you're fighting. You're, fi- you're, you're fighting, we'll bring in the army, we'll bring in the police, we'll throw you in jail. Or you're, you're squashing frogs and they're multiplying. So I was thinking to myself, and And, Ed, and if... If he had led the people that he was trying to help and led them in a violent manner to fight violence with violence, the people that were trying to prevent them from getting ahead would say, see, right. this, is, this is what we're trying to stop. This is what we don't want. And so it was very, I mean, he, was, he deserves his position in the world as a difference maker. He made a difference. So I imagine like this. Imagine by the plague of frogs, if he would have been there, he would have explained to everybody calmly, self-control, don't be fools, leave the frogs alone. And there'll be a couple thousand frogs hopping around. And the plague would basically just go away and would not have caused any fear. It wouldn't have been a plague. The plague would have been over. But because he wasn't there, it's just really fascinating. Of course, there was no one there like him. Otherwise, God wouldn't have bothered with that plague. Right. It wouldn't have worked. But it's interesting. I thought if he would have been there, what would have happened to the plague? Well, it would have gone from being a plague to an inconvenience. Yeah. 
That's that's really what it would have been. It's an interesting. Never thought of that one before. Um, no, definitely. It's a new way to frame it. See, we always look for new ways of thinking of what's going on in the world. That is exactly what we're trying to accomplish. Okay, I'll just um, maybe we'll get back to it. We'll see. But you know what, Tony? I think we're ready now for our poster, our letter of the week. And again, um, anybody wants to call in? A few minutes left. 844-999-9249 as we get ready for our letter of the week and our word of the week. So I, oh, my poster is there. That is the third letter in the Jewish alphabet. The letter is Gimel. It is the third letter in the alphabet. Interesting enough, it has, a, it has three little, little crowns on top. There's, there's about seven letters that have those crowns. This is the first one that has all those crowns. The number three fits in very nicely. It's actually a combination of two letters. It's got what's called a yud, an upside down for one of the legs. It's got a zion going up. We're not up to those letters yet, um, but it says that around the side as you read the different uh, margins. There's actually like a foot. There's a foot that's going out towards the next letter. Um, Again, Hebrew goes right to left. Mm -hmm. So therefore that foot coming out is going to the left towards the next letter which is really fascinating because it'll bring us to our word of the week. Um, the Jewish people, or anybody should be, but the world has three pillars. The, the, the Mishnah tells us the world stands on three pillars. There's one is Torah, one is service or prayer, and one is kindness. Three. Again, the number Gimel, by the way, the letter Gimel represents the number three. So you have these three things. Interesting enough, there were three forefathers. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's backwards, actually. Um, Abraham is the one that represents kindness. Isaac represents service or prayer. And Jacob represents Torah. So the, the letter Gimel, if you, you can repronounce it as Gomel, we call that Gomel Chasadim or Gemilus Chasadim. That means to bestow or to do kindness to others. So interesting enough, this letter Gimel is moving towards the next letter, which is a Dalit. We'll talk about that next week. But the Dalit, the word Dalit, the first two letters, actually represent a poor person. So we have the Gimel, with its legs sticking out, representing you need to do kindness to those that are less fortunate. Which is an interesting in the order of the letters as something that comes up. So, um, so but the word I wanted to work on this week is gomel. Gomel means to bestow or to do, and, and, and it's always used to do kindness. We are gomel chasadim. We always want to do kindness. So I actually heard somebody today say it, um, even though I would say it was written in my notes, but it was in my head. Um, and that is, if you think of kindness, Buzz, if I asked you to, that what would you qualify as a kindness? What would you say off the top of your head? To um, be charitable and to give um, assistance or help um, in any way, shape, or manner that is necessary to help somebody else and do it unselfishly and without any looking for any remuneration for your kindness. Right. Excellent. And now can we take it, can we ratchet it up? How can we make that kindness better? Well, one of the things people should understand about kindness is... Uh, the kindness, 
if you see, it's been proven that if you witness an act of charity, just an, uh, uh, if you witness it, you will get a, um, you will feel an exhilaration of yeah. yes, um, the 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 chemical, the yeah the chemical in your brain, the dopamine or the whatever endorphins, endorphins. Oh, that's it. Any of those things will go up if you. If you do an act of kindness or charity without any, without you rush, you see it, you do it, and you automatically, you will have an increase, uh, um, three times the increase you could get when you witness one. And so there is a, there is a payback to an individual that cannot be um, ever um, measured in finance or money or any, any kind of a gift. That is cool. Very good. I still got to ratchet up the level one more. Okay. But before I get there, there was an interesting experiment, and I don't remember who did it. You could look it up online, where I think it was Japanese scientists. I think so. Where they actually took, I guess, frozen water, ice cubes, ice sculptures or something, and they put it in a room. And they brought into the room all kinds of nasty people people that didn't know how to say one nice thing about anybody, just nasty people, nasty language, and they left them in the room for an hour, and then they went out. And then they used a microscope to look at the ice crystals, and, and it was just, like, ugly. It was, it was just not nice. It was broken. It was horrible. But that's fine. Maybe it always looks that way. So then they did it, took another ice sculpture, and they brought in a bunch of people, and they, I guess they told them beforehand, they had to speak nicely, speak pleasant, don't say, you know, unkind things about other people. Just speak nicely. And then when they looked under the microscope, everything was beautiful. Crystals, pretty, very interesting scientific experiment. Exactly. So, and I was just being in the environment of people that are doing good things, observing it, watching it, doing it yourself, it, it affects everything. Yeah. It affects the person, it affects the air, it, ex- it affects that water and ice. Amazing. Metaphorically speaking, authors and people have done it forever saying come to the light you know don't stay in the darkness and the darkness is where everything is nasty and ugly and terrible and the light is where you can see and smile right but now i'm going to bring it up a little bit more there's a Uh, famous uh, parable i guess they give um that if you're a fisherman for argument's sake and a poor man comes to you you could give him a fish right what do we say you give the man a fish you feed him for a day you teach him how to fish you, you've given him a livelihood. Yeah, he can eat for a living. So the the next level kindness, and as I can do for people, I can help people, but I if I can teach people, if I can put people on their two feet, and I can I can help them with their own, uh, just making a living or whatever it has to be. That's a new level of kindness. When you do that for somebody, you are um, helping them make deposits in their vault of personal equity and personal equity is the feeling that makes you feel good and confident about who you are what you are and you should own who you are and go ahead and people who are um plagued with um bad experiences in their life should understand one thing that the rear view mirror is for changing lanes and the windshield is for looking forward and that's where you're going cool i love it so now, Sorry, I didn't mean that. No, I love it. So now let me tell you, like, so I'll tell you a quick story. So not, not really a story. Um, actually, today and tomorrow night, my daughter, my fifth grader, is in a school play. This school play 
the school I represent. She your was your daughter, daughter, the actress? No, my, not my daughter, the actress. Trust me, not my daughter, the actress. <laughs> Sorry. But this school play is really fantastic. Why? The entire elementary school, 100 and, I don't know, 140 girls are all involved. That was the first, first through fifth, each grade, on their level, first, second grade, probably do a song, and, and maybe the next grade will do a dance, and the next grade will do a song with a dance, and the actresses are six through eight. And there's, again, in these types of plays, there's, you could be an actress, you could, you could be in choir, you could be in a, a different dance, it'll be obviously more complicated than the younger children, but this is the way the school works. Everybody's in. And you get to choose what you want to do. Now, there's a lot of times in life we, we want to try things. We are not given the opportunity. We don't get to find out where our talents lie. And sometimes we know we're not so talented. We're not going to be that great actress or actor. But I want to be on stage and say one or two lines. So the, the, the purpose of the play is to get everybody involved where everyone can look for their talents and everyone can feel good about what they're capable of accomplishing, and they all get involved. Now, they're not done. Then you have the high school, because the high school is really connected to this elementary school. The high school girls will be responsible, almost as teams, to help the younger children. Uh, My high school daughter, for example, is in charge of the choir with another friend. They'll help the girls develop the songs and sing the songs. Other girls will be responsible for for the dance or for the play or for props or for, or for costumes or for getting things set up and the lighting and the marketing. So everybody's involved and everyone can find things that they're good at. So instead of it being an administration that has a few hired hands to run the whole play and they tell you what to do, this way there's a camaraderie. Everyone's involved. And if you think about it, that's an amazing kindness. Because we are giving you the opportunity to find out, first of all, to shine. Mm-hmm. So we're giving you that's a kindness to talk about people feeling good about themselves. But I'm, I'm doing a kindness to say, you know, you didn't realize that you have a nice voice. You didn't realize you could be involved in, in, in props or, or, or doing scenery or that you're good at this or good at that. We're, we're, we're giving you the opportunity to show you what, what you could do. And that's really amazing. Which lead, that's our word, this word of gomel or gemilos chesed, of, of leading you on the way to kindness or doing kindness for you, or I don't want to say to you, but we're doing kindness for you. We're trying to do a kindness that's going to help you grow as a person. Enabling somebody in a, to figure out who they are and what they are for themselves, that's beautiful. That's amazing. That's what's going on. You never saw a play like this. No, probably not. But don't feel bad you're not invited. Me neither. Ashley, you can go. It's okay. It's a it's a woman's only. Tony, it's not for you either. Not that you would go to the play. I know you're busy. It happens to be it's taking place like uh, like right now. But there's a second uh, viewing um, tomorrow night. But it's a uh, women's only. It's mm-hmm. like a mother's night out, grandmother's night out, girls' night out. So we do it in our auditorium. But uh, but thank God that we have so many people coming that one show. You can't get everybody in the auditorium. Sold out. Sold out. So we have two shows. And to my knowledge, they don't do three shows because this, like, overwhelms the school for, like, two weeks. Just the practicing and the and getting everything put together. And a friend of mine was working on, on some of the hardware stuff this morning and, and over the weekend. It's been a busy time. But they come home and they're done. 
they feel so good. It's really is it one of the highlights of the like the winter season? Is that I think so. It's 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 hard. So for the elementary school, it's every other year, and for the high school, it's every other year. It's just too much for a school well, to understand. put all of these right. plays. But it's really it's really it's fantastic. So as we're getting towards the end of our fast-moving day. Wow. So, Buzz, you've never been here when we've done this. No, this is incredible. But one of the things we make sure to do every week, and now Ashley understands how we do this, and Tony will be ready momentarily, it's important to, to review what we have learned this week. We're going to make Buzz go first. Buzz, what did you learn today? I've learned that you, if you can take away the, the fear from individuals, we'll go back to the stories of the plague, and you can allow them to use the tools that God gave them to get to the point that they have to get to, to systematically help them break the chains of slavery. Reason was the key element there and following the leader that God provided for them to, to follow. Um, also to um, take the word kindness and take it from a word and use it as a action as opposed to a word, and see how good you feel by making somebody else feel even better. You should have been an English teacher. I mean, I don't know if you were an English teacher. No, I. Uh, no, I'm a, a C. Professor. Listen, I'm a C student with a good personality. That's how I got where I am. You would have been a good professor. They would have liked you, especially the C student uh, professor, because those are the ones that at least care about everybody else. Okay, Ashley, your turn. What'd you learn this week? Can I just steal his answer? Always, always. <laughs> no, I learned that they had bazookas back in Egypt. That was <laughs> an interesting <laughs> fact. Okay. Really? You and my third graders. Can you, you are something. Up, can you hook up Tony? Tony, can we hear you? I don't know. Can you hear me? We can hear you, Tony. I can what hear did you, you learn? What did you learn? Um, I found the whole thing about the frogs really interesting, actually. I didn't really think about, like, I knew it was one of the ten plagues, and, like, I knew it was, I didn't know it went down like that exactly. And I think it was also interesting that you said, like, the frogs really were not a problem. Like, I was wondering what, what problems they cause, but I guess when you start killing them and they start doubling, then it becomes an issue. That, that, yeah, it becomes an issue. When, they, when you can't move and wherever you go, there's frogs, and in your bed, if you open your mouth, they're jumping in you, and in the ovens, oh, lots of problems. Did they carry diseases and stuff, too? Um, it doesn't say, so the likelihood is not, because that wasn't the purpose of the plague. They talk about the purpose of the plagues. We talk about noise before and fear, so the frogs croak. So the, the tremendous amount of noise created, in itself created fear, which they also explained that all the plagues were in order of how you would, you would wage war. The first plague is blood, there's no water supply, and the next one is noise. So we have bombs for noise. You can't sleep, you can't, you know, you sleep deprivation is a, is a torture. Remember Waco, with they, they blasted that music yep. for a couple of days till, you don't remember I Waco. wasn't there, but I remember seeing it on the news, yeah. Yeah, it's... You don't remember Waco? I think it was before you were born. It's okay. I think his name was David Kesh, if I'm not mistaken. Something like that, yeah. And he was a... They use, they use noise to, to, and instead of breaking down the doors with guns, they just use noise. It was psychological that they, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't function. And then they give right. up, and then you come in and you can save everybody. Well, I mean, a constant noise is enough to drive anybody insane. So. Right, so this plague of frogs... Especially annoying noise. Uh, you you got to imagine the croaking of millions of frogs is not something that we would all be looking forward to. You're not going to get a good night's sleep. Not a good night's sleep. I'm going to tell you one more kindness story, because I see I have, eh, maybe I can get in a minute. Just a Go quick idea. 
Um, so the Jewish people were slaves. So the, the Pharaoh, of course, has to supply his slaves with food. Not good food, not a lot of food, but food. Energy. Yeah, the matzah, those wafers that we eat. Well, interesting enough, we talked about last week, there was one tribe that were not slaves. The tribe of Levi were not slaves. So the question is, where they get food from? As the Pharaoh is supplying the food, so if I have to supply food to my slaves, I'll supply it to slaves. But, but who's giving, why would I give to this other tribe that's not even working? Good, they have a good excuse not to work. But, but why am I giving them to, why am I giving them food? So the answer is, as my music plays to let me end off, um, the answer is they actually took a collection. As all the slaves, all the Jews working, would go ahead and would put a little piece of their daily rations into bags, and those would be delivered to the brethren. And that's an amazing kindness. Yes, it is. And as our music is playing, I'd like to thank all our wonderful sponsors and listeners. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to my production team. Buzz, I appreciate you coming down. Thank you for having me. This was very educational yeah. and interesting. And I hope fun. And Ashley. And very and much fun. Tony, Leonard. Um, I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi C. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.